0: Love to hear you all pray. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for being stretched. Find your way back to your seats. Make yourself comfortable. And turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of the Bible uh, we'd love to give you one. There are some available at the back and there's actually some if you're here there's some in the pews right in front of you and if and if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you you're going to be going to page one zero three seven as where you're going to find Ephesians 3 it's in the towards the end of the Bible page one zero three seven in the Pew Bibles this morning we're going to read together um, What Paul's heart is, part of Paul's heart here for the Ephesian believers, Um, it's an incredible couple of verses. And and before we read it, just so you know the context of it, there's basically an opening, then there's a prayer request, and there's a prayer request, and then there's a doxology. So that's kind of the format of the verses for the day, and I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me in body or in spirit for the reading of God's Word. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through his Spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And together we say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What an incredible prayer. What an incredible prayer. And I confess, as I studied this week, I was challenged at the way I pray. Like, there's things that I, that I pray for that, that bless the heart of God. Like like I said, Paul says you can cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Actually, that's Peter. But Paul says, pray in all circumstances, he says in Thessalonians. And when I read the content of some of these prayers, what what Paul is doing as he is praying here is he's teaching us to pray. He, he's teaching us what's on his heart, what's on God's heart for these believers in a city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the major cities in the whole Roman Empire at this time. Um, It's in the Asia Minor area, and it's very known for worship. It's it's known for a lot of worship. Primarily, it's known for the worship of a whole bunch of different false pagan gods. And nestled within this very um, godless driven community, are a body of believers whom God is wanting to build up so that they might make his name spread throughout their whole area and throughout the world. Paul has a great desire for these believers to become everything God wants them to be. No, it's not just an army like thing, like an army ad. He wants them to become who God intends them to be in the fullness of Christ. And so his prayers are focused right here on two different things. We're gonna look at those two things uh, together this morning. But before we do that, look at this first, um, this first phrase in verses 14 through 15. Paul says here, for this reason. <clears throat> so he's actually tying this prayer back to something he's already been talking about. Um, he actually has this in the beginning of chapter three as well. In the beginning of chapter three, he says, for this reason, I Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes, you've heard, haven't you, about the administration of of God's grace that he gave? And so most scholars think that he's not referring back to the beginning of chapter three. It's almost as if he starts a phrase in chapter three with that first, for this reason, and then gets just overwhelmed with something else that he wants to share. So he starts, for this reason, wait a second, I gotta tell you this. And then he comes back to it in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I pray. So what, what is the for this reason here for? It's referring back to what Paul has been talking about this entire time. He's been talking about how God has made for himself and for his kingdom purposes a new humanity. How he's taken Gentiles and He's brought them into His kingdom. How He's taken Jewish people and He's brought them into His kingdom through faith in Jesus the Messiah, through the grace of the Lord that was manifested and demonstrated for us when He died and He rose again. And how they're called to now to live in. Together as one body with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, being the head, being the bridegroom, all these different metaphors serve to say, you all, he says to the church, to the ecclesia, you all are one in Messiah with Christ Jesus as the head in Christ Jesus who is over all things. And so he's praying um, for this reason, verse 14 of chapter 3, I kneel before the Father... You know, he's praying for their unity. He's going to be praying that they would know who they are in the Messiah, that they would know that they have access to God in the Messiah, Jesus, and that they would grow into this maturity. But as he prays for this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul's prayers are directed to the Father. He comes by way of the Son, but he comes to the Father, much the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When Jesus was asked in in the book of Matthew, one of the places where it's recorded, his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, he begins with this, our Father who art in heaven. Some translations say, hallowed be your name. You could also translate it, may your name be sanctified. But I love that he starts with this, our Father, because when he uses the word Abba in, in the Aramaic there, it, it's a term that describes intimacy, but it also describes respect. God is high and holy, and yet he's very approachable through the work in the person of Jesus. In fact, he came down to us because we could not reach up to him because of sin. And so <clears throat> we can say our Father, as Jesus taught his, his disciples to pray, as he teaches us to pray, and we say that with intimacy and with respect. When we say our Father, I know that that word Father is a challenge for some of us listening to my voice right now. Because when we think father, we have a certain image based upon our human um, experience with father, and that taints or that colors how we look at father, just even the phrase. And so when Jesus is teaching this, and when Paul is saying this, sometimes we have to be able to say, all right, maybe my earthly father was not all that good. And we have to say, Lord, what does it mean that you are my father? I love the many parables that Jesus gives and, and perhaps the best one that teaches the idea of the naturehood of the Father of God is one I think I shared briefly a couple weeks ago. It's a story of the, the, the loving father and his two lost sons. Sometimes we call it the story of the prodigal son where he has one son who's stuck in a whole stretch of legalism, kind of like the Pharisees who were listening to him were. And then he's got one son who went and did every sinful thing underneath the son. And the story is not so much, not primarily focused on the two boys, though it is. It's a story of a loving father who says to his son who is far off and distant and in relationship, I love you so much, come near. And he welcomes him back upon his repentance. And then he looks to his, uh, his oldest son, who's been physically with him the whole time, but whose heart is also far from him, and he says, come Won't you come celebrate with us? It's this invitation to relationship. And so all that said, when we say our Father, Jesus is coming at this with a certain idea of who God the Father is. And and he is a Father who's a sustainer, who's a redeemer, who's a teacher, who's a corrector, and who's one who is rich in mercy and full of love and grace. His idea of Father is grounded in a strong, wholesome sense of family relationship. So Paul comes (coughs) and he kneels in prayer, and and Jewish prayer was often uh, uttered standing. Kneeling, though, was not uncommon. One scholar suggested that to pray kneeling was to pray with a particular intensity. So you can imagine um, this uh, Jewish man, fr- originally from Tarsus, is, is kneeling in a jail cell. He's, he's, this is one of the prison letters. And he's coming before God, and he's saying, For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And here are his prayers. Verse 16 gives the first one. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in the inner man through... His spirit, and that the Messiah might dwell in your hearts through faith. So, if you wanted to simplify that, you could simplify it down to I pray for him to, or I pray for you to be strengthened by God with power in the inner man. Paul is praying that God would give them strength in the very core of who they are. And that's going to tie to his second prayer. But when he says here that I I pray that that you have strength, you could almost imagine that the church in Ephesus, the reason he's praying is because they probably felt pretty weak. I pray that you would have strength. I pray that you would know, he says, in your inner person. When he talks about your inner person, we're talking about things like our minds, how we think about things. We're talking about our our wills, how we choose, and how we make decisions about things. We're talking about our emotions, which can be really high and which can be really low. He's saying, I pray that you would be strengthened with power, and that's God's power, and that's the kind of resurrection power there. The the word there for power is dunamis in Greek, and it's this amazing power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He's saying, God, would you take your power, power, Power that raises people from the dead, and would you strengthen your church with power in the inner man through your spirit, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now we looked at this word for dwell last week, and the word dwell, it's a similar word here. Um, The word here in verse um, 17 is the verb form of what we looked at last week, which is the noun form of the word in chapter two, verse 22. In chapter 2, verse 22, it says, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. In other words, um, the church is being built up so that we would be the inhabitation of God here on this earth. That the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we choose, the way that we think, the way that we feel would be an accurate representation by the power of his Spirit to our world of the goodness and the truth and the mercy and the grace of God and that we'd walk in that. And so the the noun, that you are God's dwelling in the Spirit, and he's talking to the church, right? This is all about the church. This is about a body. So when you see the word you here or your, almost always it is the plural. He's talking about the body of Messiah. He's talking about the ecclesia, the called out ones. (coughs) He says, I pray that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. So it's interesting. He uses the verb here because... On the one hand, we are the dwelling of God here on this earth. We, we are the people in whom God's spirit resides. But we are also the people in whom he says, I want Christ to dwell in and through you so that the way that you speak and the way that you think and the way that you act and the way that you love is actually lived out in flesh, in bones, right? He, he wants what is true of them as a people to be descriptively true of them in how they actually walk and live each day. And so he's praying for power because he knows that there's no way that they can experience that kind of life in Messiah without God's power through the Holy Spirit. (coughs) He says that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. So we get a a glimpse of Paul's prayer for this. He, He wants their new humanity. He wants them to take all of their differences, And he wants them to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who fills everything perfectly in every way. He wants them to be the dwelling. He wants to be the the people made up of Jews and Gentiles, made up of people from all sorts of nationalities and all sorts of racial backgrounds and all sorts of linguistic backgrounds and all sorts of economic backgrounds and all sorts of power or status backgrounds. He wants them to be the dwelling of God actively in the world through faith now um it's kind of hard to understand that for me like what what does it mean then to to be god's dwelling but also to walk out life as god's dwelling and i heard a great analogy earlier this week Um, that I'll apply to this years ago my wife and I bought our first house and we bought this house and before we moved in we did a full clean of it and and we we did some painting projects Um, we redid part of the bathroom like the the dwelling was ours upon the signing of the of the mortgage and it was ours especially when they gave us the keys like it was possessionally ours but we had to do some things. We had to be engaged in some practical things to make that dwelling from what it was into what we wanted it to become. It's, maybe, maybe I'm not the only one, but um, as we sold that house several years later, there were still projects on that list of things that I wanted to do, but you know, time gets away from you, you punt that next one down the road, next thing you know, uh, you're like, oh, we are selling our house. Oh, maybe I should fix that small thing. Like there's one thing I fixed and it literally took like 20 minutes. But for seven years, I didn't touch it. Why? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who does this kind of thing. Uh, but but learning to be a dwelling takes a process. It, it, it takes some time. It, 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 takes, it takes some intentional um, walking with God. Um, and, and as a community, that is especially true, because this community is being pulled from all sorts of different segments of society and segments of, of people who would not normally just get together and have a good time. They're gathered together for the glory of God and to be the people of God, and it's almost as if God's saying, you are my dwelling, and now I want to fashion, and I want to work in you, and I want to, to, to strengthen you so that you become the exact habitation that I long for you to be in the world. It's almost as if God's the homeowner, and he comes and he says, I've got a couple of house projects. <laughs> and you can't tackle everything at once, and so God starts here, and he starts there, and then he moves to here, and he moves to there. So, so practically speaking, th- this idea of dwelling is, is something that, that is ours. You know, we are the, t- we are the temple of, of God, we are the naeus of God. We are the people in whom God dwells, but we are the people in whom God is working his life in and through so that the house looks a whole lot better when he's done with it than when he started. Right? There's active involvement with this idea of dwelling. But the really cool thing, too, about, um, about this is, is that that dwelling is permanent. That, that dwelling is not something that's taken away. <clears throat> it's just something that's improved upon, if you, if you could say it that way, through the work of God. So his first prayer here is, to, is that the believers would be strengthened with power in their inner man in how they think, in how they feel, in, in the choices that they make, through His Spirit. That, that, that they would be so enamored with who God is that they would say, all right God, how should I think about this? How, how, how should we feel about this? How, how should we choose in this scenario based upon what you would have us do? That's, that's His heart for them, and that they'd be strengthened in this work. In the Holy Spirit. He says, I pray, this is the second part of 17, going into the second prayer here. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love. I, I love it because before he talks about love, he's going to say, I pray that you, you you're, ro- you're rooted and you're firmly established in love. Like you, you have this, you have this. Um, Think of like a tree. You have like a tree that's planted. You are in the soil of God's love. You're rooted and you're established. But this idea of root here means that there's continued growth again. I pray that you'd be rooted and established in love. Here's his second prayer. That you may understand or you may comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. He wants them to know something. And he doesn't want them to just know it up here, he wants them to know it here. He says that you would comprehend with all the saints together as a people what is the length, width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge. So when we talk about the Messiah's love and we talk about knowing it, it's something that can be known, but it's also something that cannot be exhausted in its knowledge. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for the knowledge of God's love for this church, that they, as they're rooted and they're firmly established in this present reality, that they would grow and their foundation would be built upon as a church. This word here for love and there's several words for love in the Greek language. Um, this word here for love, though, is the word agape. Say agape. Agape. Um, this, is, this, this is God's covenantal love. Th- th- this is, um, this is a, a, an active-based love. Um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, I've, I've probably told you this before, my grandparents had this, um, ha- had this uh, magnet on their fridge, and it said, to love is a decision, Right? This is a this is a love that's not a, an emotionally based love primarily. This is a love that's grounded in decision. Uh, the way that Pastor Mike, my former senior pastor here and good friend and mentor of mine used to describe this kind of love, as he would say, unconditional love, agape love is a decision, it's an act of the will to bring to bear all the resources of heaven to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. When we think about love, when we hear songs about love, when we say, I love you, a lot of times what we mean behind that is, I feel something right now. Oh, they're in love. When God talks about this agape love, he's talking about a love that has chosen to act on our behalf. Pastor Tom quoted it from Romans 5 8, When we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. That's an expression of his love. Uh, in the letters, I think it's in 1 John, um, the Apostle John writes, um, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ lay down his life for us. So when we think about this word agape, we have to think about how does God define love and how do we experience that kind of love? This is that decisive love that goes the whole mile without expecting anything in return. So when we think about this, He says, I want you being rooted and firmly established in this love that God has for you, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the length and width, the height and depth of God's love. He's rooting them in something that is not emotion-based. Now, emotions may come from that. Emotions of gratitude, emotions of thankfulness, emotions of joy, They may spring from that, but it's grounded in God's decisive action for humanity. And and I love how he uses this this image here, the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. This is an image that he uses um, in in a small way in Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words. This is part of uh, kind of he comes to this end of Romans chapter 8, and he says, uh, I won't read the whole of the chapter, but he says in verse 35, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, Paul says, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. And he says this, for I'm convinced or I'm persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other thing created will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Like, if you want to know the depth and the power and the strength of God's love for you, go to Romans 8. You want to know the kind of love that surpasses all knowledge and understanding, go to Romans 8. It's a great cross-reference. And he's saying this in the midst of talking about how we experience sufferings at this present time and how they're not worth being compared to the glory that will one day be revealed. And to talk about that, he goes back to the limitless love of God. It's hard to understand this love of God. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging thing, I think, for our minds to think through sometimes. <clears throat> An image that came to me as I was studying this week is I was reminded one time my son and I uh, were on a hiking trip up in the Manistee River Trail. And on our map was a, a waterfall. And I was like, Awesome, there's a waterfall. We'll we'll find it. That would be a great stopping point. Maybe we'll turn around there and and start hiking back. And so we get to this place that is noted on the map as a waterfall, and here's what we saw. (laughs) I don't know if you can even tell if there's water in there, but literally, Ephraim and I, we both stopped, we looked at the map, we looked at the waterfall. I think we could get a better waterfall from the baptistry water coming out than we experienced that day, though the green was very nice. You can't even tell that there's water falling there. There's a little bit of water, but it's just sad. Um, We got to the waterfall, we're checking our map, we're like, is this where? Like, I think we're reading this map right. Yep, this is, they spent the time to put on a map, waterfall, (laughs) and that's what we experienced. Now, for someone who may have never seen running water, That would have been like, wow, there's running water. Um, A couple years back, my family and I were coming home from (coughs) some time in the New England area for a wedding, and um, we stopped at Niagara Falls. Uh, Now, if you want to compare apples to apples, (laughs) this waterfall in Niagara, we're talking two different shades of of color here. And and maybe you've never actually been to Niagara. How many of you have actually ever been to Niagara Falls? All right, several people here. So I've had the opportunity to be on the Canadian side, on the American side. Um, on this last trip, we actually went down and we took the boat ride where you, you kind of get closer to the falls. You know, we were with our kids in this last trip and you come to the edge to kind of look at stuff and it's not like a straight down from where you're standing, but I'm still like holding my kids back because as we're climbing and we're hiking around the falls, here's what we saw. Do you notice a difference? <laughs> like, I hope so. And, and this is one vantage point of the falls. If you're on the Canadian side, you see it differently. Some would argue the Canadian side is better. Some would argue, I don't want to get into that argument. But even on this trip, (coughs) we saw the falls like this. Then we saw the falls like this. And then we experienced the falls like this. (laughs) I love it. My, My daughter's catching all the spray she could right there. We're on the boat ponchos on, trying to keep the camera dry. She's loving life. And we experienced an amazing waterfall. Very, very different than our hiking trip. Why do I tell you this? When we think about God's love, some of us think of God's love as being like a trickle that comes down the side of that semi-hill in Manistee when the full power of God's love is much more like this. I think the growing experience of God's love is something that continues throughout our life. The reason I think that is because Paul says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. He wants you and I to know God's love more fully today than we did yesterday and we can know God's love through a whole bunch of different things we know God's love when we experience sin and yet we are reminded that we are forgiven like when we engage in sin we're reminded that we're forgiven We, we experience God's love in that when we were still sinners when we had absolutely no power to save ourselves Christ died for us We experience God's love, (coughs) and we can demonstrate God's love when we go to someone and we say, you may feel like you're neglected, or I may feel like I'm neglected, or that I'm worthless, but guess what? God loves you like this. He's all in with his kind of love. It's the only way God knows how to love. All in, full on. I seem to remember that there was maybe a hiking trip that you could do where you could go behind these falls. If you were to experience that, you'd get a different vantage point of the same water. There was the person many decades ago who went into a barrel and went over the falls. (laughs) Not the greatest life decision, perhaps. They experienced the falls in a different way. I love how Paul says, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. In other words, that you would be able to comprehend together because he's talking to the church. What is the length and breadth and depth and width of God's love? Why do you think he has (coughs) this with all the saints in there? I wonder if it's because every single one of us has a slightly different vantage point on God's love. For those who've walked through incredible loss in their life, they, they, they experience God's love in a certain way because of their circumstances. For those who have experienced a different kind of struggle or a different kind of trial or a different kind of victory, they experience God's love in a whole nother way. To experience the love of Christ together is an important thing because as I watch you follow Christ and learn to trust him more each day, it reminds me of how much God loves you and how much God loves me because he's met you where you're at. One of the great, great, important things about the church is that when we comprehend together, we actually are able to build up and to encourage one another in the love of God. Um, Paul is praying for believers in a different place than where he's at that they would experience God's love that they would know this love, this love that surpasses knowledge that they would that they would know this, and I would submit that he wants them to know it not just up here, he wants them to know it deep inside of their bones he wants them to know as they <clears throat> head into that conversation on Sunday afternoon or into that work environment on Monday or into that family thing on Monday night or Tuesday night or, or as they go home and, and things are different than they have used to be and there's chaos or there's struggle within the house. He wants them to know you are loved. And, and the Lord wants you to know that you are loved fully and completely and that he wants to transform who you are and what you do not through some, now, did you do this, and check, 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 through some sort of legal code. He wants to actually transform you through his love. That's the amazing thing about love, is when we, when we experience the fullness of God's love, the only response we have is to say, all right, Lord, you have loved me, here I am. It becomes an expression of worship. It becomes an expression of surrender. And I would say it this way about a church. A church that is maturing and transformational in their walk with God increasingly knows, increasingly knows in their bones, the immensity of God's love for them. And it's gonna be this kind of love, the love that sent the son to Calvary. The, the the love that jesus expressed for us that he willingly died in our place it's going to be that kind of powerful love that's going to be in, bring incredible transformation to all who say yeah god has loved me what more can i give than all of me for his glory in fact that's kind of how paul ends here that you would know the messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In fact, the, the goal of this knowledge is fullness. And we'll talk about this more a little bit next week when we're in Ephesians chapter four. But fullness, you could say, is, is being who God has designed me to be in the power of Christ. That's maturity. Being who God has design, designed me to be in the power of Christ. Um, We're going to let the doxology stand on its own there. I'll just note, uh, okay, so we won't let it stand on its own. I'll just make one note, but we weren't going to study it. Notice how he says, now to him who is able to do. As Paul prays this, his doxology is, God, you're able to do this. I'm trusting you that they would be strengthened with all power in their inner man, that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith, and that they would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge in their lives together as a community. How do we apply this? Here's a couple of of helpful things I hope for us to apply. These couple of verses from Paul for the church. The first one is this. (coughs) I believe we can model our lives after Paul's here for one another and for believers throughout the world. That we pray that God would reveal to us Both individually and us corporately, the immensity of his love for us and the world. I know, just by like just statistical probabilities here, I know that there are people who are struggling in this room with God loving them. One of the things, even if you don't know who they are, that's okay. One of the things you can do as you can pray that God would reveal to this church family the immensity of his love, that we would know it in our bones, that we would, that we would experience it in a way that's not just cognition, but goes from the 18 inches in our head down to our hearts where it, where it brings transformation through the power of Christ in our life. Secondly, <coughs> we can pray for God to strengthen us and believers with power in our inner man through the Holy Spirit. When we pray for strength, we're we're praying that God would give us the strength and the power to walk in his way. That that we would be receptive and that we would um, walk, put it this way, that we would love the way that God has loved us. He is the model for how we love we love because he first loved us. But that we would then seek to walk this out and we can pray for the strength and we should and we ought pray for the strength. So here's two prayers that could absolutely be pivotal in your family this week and within our church this week. Because a church that knows how God loves them deep in their bones is a church that is transformational within their communities, within their people. There's one more application I have for us. Pray for God to teach us how to walk in love. In fact, in Ephesians five, two, Paul is going to say, "Walk in love," <laughs> like walk in this decisive action, not this emotional roller coaster of love. Walk in the decisive action, as Pastor Mike said. Love is a decision, it's an act of the will to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. My friends, the only way we can walk in love is to walk in the power of God's Spirit. I think that's why Paul says earlier that we read that you would be strengthened in the the inner man through his Spirit. This doesn't come based upon sheer will. It only comes through God working in and through you. Our response is, is to say, God, here we are. Would you transform our minds and our, in our hearts in such a way that we would respond rightly to the situations you place in us, that we would walk out love? <clears throat> and this is, this is for your study this week. If you want to have some like tangible ideas of, okay, love. So I've, maybe you've always thought of love as being this emotion kind of thing. How do I know love when I see it, right? Paul is great, 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through seven, I summarized it here for you. Here are things that love is. Love is patience, love is kind. These are things that only God can produce in you because only God can produce love in you. Like, the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. Uh, to, to, to walk in this kind of love, it requires absolute dependence, and then it requires absolute obedience. Love is patience. So you, you, you know what love is when you see patient when you see kind. You also know what love is on the opposite here. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud or conceited. It doesn't act improperly. It's not selfish. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't find joy in unrighteousness. It's a whole lot easier to say love is patient, love is kind, than to say, Lord, where oh, maybe I've got some selfishness or provoking, or maybe I'm keeping a record of wrongs in my life. And that's just a a tip to our heart that we need to return to God who wants to transform us, but we have to give up these rights we think we have and receive his grace. God, I I want to boast. God, I want to be selfish, but I yield that right to you. I, I want to find joy in unrighteousness, but I can't. Not Not to walk in love, love is patient, love is kind, love does not do those things. Love does not find joy in righteousness here's the corollary to that one, but it rejoices in truth it's hard to love in truth sometimes and it's hard to love in truth with also without also loving with pride or with conceit <laughs> like Right? Like, I wanna love and truth, and I want you to know that you're absolutely wrong and I'm right. Got a kind of mismatch of what love is going on there. But here's the last couple of things that love is described as. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Your application, pray that God would reveal to you and to our church the immensity of God's love for us. Pray that God would strengthen us with power in our inner man through his spirit so that our mind, our will, our emotions would become so saturated by his presence. That we'd know how, how loved we are and that God would give us the grace to love in the way that he has loved us. And finally, pray for God to teach us how to walk in love. Patient, kind, rejoices in truth, bears, believes, hopes all things. These responses, by the way, are not determined by our circumstances, not at all. Whatever circumstance you and I find ourselves in today, we have the opportunity to learn how to love the way God loves. They're determined, not by our circumstances, but by our yieldedness to God. What are the areas as we walk through some of those things that God is saying, will you yield this to me? Will you trust me with this, that you can walk in my love? for the glory of God. Pray with me, please. (coughs) Our Father and our King, we thank you that we are loved. God, when we were at our worst, you came and you stepped down decisively in human history. You took on flesh and blood. You became our sin offering so that we (laughs) separated from you because of our sins could find a way back into relationship with you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And God, we are so grateful. We have so much to be thankful for. God, would you help us to pray prayers for one another this week and prayers for ourselves that we would be strengthened with all power in the inner man. That we would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And God, for us, you might be just revealing a little bit more of that amazing, amazing waterfall of your love this week. (coughs) We might get a whole new picture of what it means that you love us and how we're called to love one another. Would you enlarge our vision of your love for us? And finally, God, we ask for your grace to walk in love. We cannot do it in our own strength. And yet, God, you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than all we can ask or imagine. Now, as we spend a few moments gathered around celebrating the Lord's Supper, would you remind us again this picture of your love for us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.